I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. So, Happy New Year, everybody. We are back. So it's probably actually well past the new year by the time you're all going to be hearing this. So bit of a bit of a delayed reaction. But um, today we are discussing what is private marriages between Henry and five of our six queens. So we're going to be taking a look at the marriage um, ceremonies and kind of what happened in a little bit more detail between um, Henry and Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr. It's, it's quite nice. It's been a while since we've had all, like more than three of them together. Last time we were talking about how weird Anne of Cleves' wedding was just because, well, I mean, for multiple reasons, but for one of the big reasons that it was so public and there was so much ceremony around it, you know, the official choreographed meet and greet and then uh, the mass, the ceremony itself, but then like the little parade afterwards and the reception party and the bedding ceremony and that's actually not typical of all of the other weddings. So it'll be interesting if you've just come off listening to that episode to now listen and hear how unremarkable the rest of the actual wedding ceremonies were, though the circumstances around them are interesting. But the ceremonies themselves are not like these big, beautiful, like Charles and Diana type weddings. They're actually fairly boring and hard to find information on. The only person who had anything akin to what Anna Cleves would have experienced, uh, as we were saying in that last episode, would have been Catherine of Aragon. And that would have been in her first marriage to Arthur, which again, I think, you know, she had the public processions, you know, meet and greets, you know, very public wedding at um, St. Paul's Cathedral. A lot of that was because of how significant she was and how significant she was to England. That's the comparison can be made between those two. I think uh, Catherine of Aragon's first marriage, though, not to Henry, just in the sense that they were the foreign commodities that were like being celebrated. But then you have all of the English queens who were already there at court. And that's where I think we're going to see the biggest um, differences between those weddings that we've already covered on the show and then the few that we're going to cover today. If we... Yeah, as I was saying, if you compare sort of them and the the grandeur, especially with, again, Catherine of Aragon and Arthur's marriage, you know, Henry VII spent the modern-day equivalent of £14,000 on jewellery just for the wedding. It shows you, you know, he was going big. If we then kind of switch gears to um, the 11th of June, 1509, when Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon was married, um, they'd been betrothed for six years at this point. There'd been a whole whole other sorts of situ- complicated situations, including Henry VII dying, Isabel of Castile dying, dowries not being paid, and any any obstacle you could think to get in the way is going to get in the way, not to mention Arthur dying. That, that threw a big spanner in the works. Um, so, yeah, by the, time, by the time June 11th, 1509 comes around, they'd been betrothed for a while, and at this point, their marriage was to complete the treaty that had been set up to marry Catherine and Arthur. So it had been a, it's been a long time coming. 
you know, at this point, she, Catherine, we, we said it before, she'd been in England about 10 years. You know, she's at this point the Dowager Princess of Wales, acting as a Spanish envoy almost, and just literally doing anything apart from the things she was sent there to do, which was to get married. So um, the, their wedding actually took place at Greenwich Palace in the Queen's uh, private closet. Um, and the that, that marriage was witnessed by Lord Stuart Shrewsbury and the groom of the Privy Chamber, William Thomas. <laughs> and we should say that we're going to be talking a lot about Queen's closets in this episode. And we do not mean the closet that is in your bedroom. Um, like they weren't getting married inside of a storage closet. This is a space in a chapel that is like a little private area for the queen to worship, but also witness what's going on in the main chapel. Similarly, the king has his own closet, but that's what we mean when we talk about closets, because I don't know, I just got this image suddenly of like Catherine and Henry huddled in my little closet, like around my, you know, knitwear hanging. <laughs> well, though, to be fair, I mean, by a comparative size, you know, like you say, it's attached to a chapel um, and it's a smaller space, probably no bigger than a bedroom. The, the, in terms of the actual chapel that, pardon me, the closet that people were in. So it's not a massive space at all, really. No, and I think the point to be made there is that it's a far more um, intimate ceremony if it's happening in the closet in that tiny space. Well, not tiny, but smaller space. Um, so you're technically in the cathedral or chapel proper, but you're you're in a far more, um, yeah, intimate, intimate space. And we'll see that this is a similar theme in all of the weddings we're going to be talking about today is that it's not some grand ceremony. It's much more focused on Henry and the bride and also the, um, the religious part of it too. Like you said, that does sometimes get lost because with Henry and Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, their sort of low key ceremony is made up for in the form of the coronation, that is the public thing, right? That is the thing to be seen at, the thing to, to go and see them at and where they're on display because they're completing that very ritualistic aspect of their marriage and not just being an aristocratic husband and wife, but they are taking on the role, like the public roles of king and queen. Now, with Henry and Catherine of Aragon's marriage, he actually had a bit of cold feet, even though him and Catherine had been given special dispensation by the Pope um, to marry and that it become legal because usually not meant to marry your brother's widow. The Pope had actually said, go ahead, it's fine, do what you need to do, we can, we can sort out the paperwork later. But there was a um, sort of the Spanish envoy who was at the court, English court at the time was said that um, to have been told by a member of the king's council that the marriage is unlikely because they know uh, because of what they know of Henry that it would burden his conscience to marry his brother's widow. Now, that's something that's going to be important a little bit later when it comes to her, their marriage being divorced and things like that. <laughs> a very big Put a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for now, that is just kind of the, the kind of conscience of an 18-year-old talking like, is this a bit icky? Is this the right thing to do? Should I be doing it? So we've got a little wobble, but things quickly get back on track um, and are absolutely fine. Now, I think the thing to note here is their wedding vows, because they're quite interesting. The wedding vows in the early modern period are extremely similar to what we hear today, like if you go to a very traditional wedding and it's the standard vows, 
with some slight alterations for the women. So we'll get to them later and you can see the difference, but just, um, yeah, like the, the vows are extremely similar. It's, it's the basic, like in sickness and in health for richer, for poor, all that. Uh, but the, this, this is the wedding where they're slightly different. So because this wedding negotiation has been dragging on for a while, I think everybody just needed to get the wedding done, but also have the marriage alliance also enshrined into law through through the marriage because that, that was the final step. So rather than it being those traditional ones, uh, we have something a little bit different and it actually kind of features the wording of the treaty. So upon them getting married, Henry was asked, most illustrious prince, is it your will to fulfil the treaty of marriage concluded by your father, the late King of England, and the parents of the Princess of Wales, the King and Queen of Spain? And as the Pope has dispensed with this marriage to take the princess who here represents your lawful wife. Kind of little little bit of lingering silence while he made up his final mind and Henry did say yes. And then um, Catherine was asked the same question. Do you take Henry verbatim what I've just said? And she said yes as well. I just think it's so interesting that all of this happened in such a, a, an intimate space. Like I know the coronation the joint coronation of henry and catherine was imminent so they still were going to have the chance to be seen by the london public but for such a momentous occasion where they're reinforcing this treaty and this political bond they chose only to have the necessary witnesses there it just makes me think that even with henry's doubts there was some element of um dare i say love involved of this is a moment for us and especially after everything Catherine's gone through it must have been just a sort of nice reaffirming personal moment rather than let's show off the princess you know let's forget the humanity in this and just show her off yeah no I, I'd completely agree because kind of any accounts that you're able to find of this and they are very very few and far between I have to say and it's a bit annoying but there we go it's it's not an unhappy occasion by any accounts. Um, so no, I think what is mm -hmm. left is is them, as much as them as it could be. But as I said, um, a lot of times the the more intimate ceremonies that we're talking about were actually a necessity too. However nice and lovely it was for the bride and the groom, it was a, a necessity to keep it on the down low. Case in point the next of Henry's marriages to Anne Boleyn. And this is one where we're going to have to do a little bit of CSI Six Queens because there's a lot of debate about when it actually happened. We have two big dates that are usually thrown around, but really it's it's anyone's guess. We, we have a ballpark, but it's unclear. I love the fact that there's a mystery surrounding their marriage. I just think it adds to the, to the drama and the scandal of Anne and Henry and I just think it's so fitting and I well. well I mean if they were trying to keep it secret the fact that almost 500 years later we still don't know bravo to everyone involved they they did it right I mean the fact that we don't even know who the priest was at this the officials of this this wedding speaks volumes to the fact that they were doing everything in their power to keep it secret and we don't even know who were intended as like witnesses or anything all we right. have is there was a handful of people. Yep. There had to be some witnesses. We know that they were there, but that's, that's, that's what you get it. Yeah. Uh, 
So as you can probably guess of all of the, the marriages, the one with Anne Boleyn is the most controversial. So the wedding is going to be the most secret and expertly timed um, because the, usually the, the wedding of Henry and Anne in the view of most historians is kind of the, the apex of their courtship in the sense that this is when Anne Boleyn finally kind of agreed that, okay, things are, things are moving. Let's get the ball rolling and let's solidify this after seven years of um, uncertainty about what's, what's going on. So something must have happened in the eyes of Henry and Anne to say, yeah, okay, it's time to formally commit ourselves to each other because this is happening. It just, the problem is it depends on what you think was the catalyst for this. So in most Tudor drama that you probably have seen, the belief is that at some point in the fall of 1532, they consummated their relationship. And we know this is definite because Elizabeth was born in September 1533. So at at, at the best, we can start there and count back nine months. And I think that's what a lot of people do, because I think this marriage was starting out on shaky ground anyway, right? They, Henry was still married to Catherine of Aragon at this point. I just think they'd both gone, we've had enough. But we can't. <laughs> so indeed, if we think that sometime around the autumn of 1532, something happened, then I think the likeliest thing, the likeliest catalyst is that Henry took Anne with him on a diplomatic trip to Calais. They went to see visit uh, King Francois of France and hopefully gain some support for their marriage. But Anne traveled on this mission as Henry's consort in all but name. Uh, she was still the Marquess of Pembroke, of course, but the way that they were, you know, living together and the way that they were accompanying each other on trips, it was clear what was happening. And so the fact that she was received and welcomed into the court maybe was the thing that said to them, okay, this is happening. We can actually do this now. And as I said, in a lot of drama, you get this as the moment when they finally decide to consummate the marriage. And there must have been some kind of maybe unofficial kind of ceremony, like uh, maybe some kind of vows uh, were said. That's what um, if you read Eric Ives's book about Anne Boleyn, which is kind of the definitive biography of Anne that we have now, he suggests that anyone who mentions the November date of their possible wedding probably is referring to perhaps some kind of like unofficial, like they swore oaths to each other. There was no priest involved. It was just kind of them saying, OK, we're doing this now and we feel comfortable enough to solidify this. And later chroniclers kind of pick up this date as, okay, this is when it, it really happened. It, it's kind of interesting with that because the November date is one that Hall focuses on, isn't it? It's one that he seems to be adamant. He's like, no, this is it. This is where they got married. Yeah, Edward Hall, the chronicler, is usually very uh, sympathetic to the monarchy. So he wouldn't be doing this to kind of um, catch them out, as it were. You know, he wouldn't be trying to expose a secret marriage. He probably actually did genuinely believe that something happened. And 
later on too, if you settle with this date, the histories that were written during the reign of Elizabeth are, I think are doing a lot of work to underscore the legitimacy of their queen. Because if you count back nine months from September, Elizabeth probably would have been conceived at the earliest, at the beginning of December. And other chroniclers who say that Henry and Anne actually didn't get married until January 1533, you know, everyone can kind of do the math, then Elizabeth might have been conceived out of wedlock, if that's if that's the date you choose. There was a, a shotgun wedding, potentially. So I think Hall is potentially kind of following that line of trying to secure legitimacy here and make sure everyone knows that Henry is not doing anything outside of his conscience. It's all in good faith, that sort of thing. Because then um, all of the people who report a January date, whatever ceremony that happened on January 25th, 1533, if indeed something did happen, is shrouded in even more secrecy than the potential November date. Um, because at least we know in November, like they were in Calais, you know, they were together, they were cohabiting, you know, they were essentially married in all but name. But then in January, whatever ceremony happened, it's like, we don't know, like, why did they choose that day? Like, was, is that when Anne found out she was pregnant? Or we just, we, we have no idea. Cannot underscore that enough. <laughs> I kind of like the mystery. I just feel like if it, it goes, been... it goes with the story of them, right? Yeah. And I think I would have been even more disappointed if it was like a big public affair. I don't know. It just, something seems a bit off about that. Um, well, I think the thing to remember here is that whatever date you choose, the November or the January date, Henry is still months away from his annulment oh, yeah. with Catherine of Aragon. That doesn't happen until like mid-May 1533. So technically, it's 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 not a good look either way. And the marriage was kept secret, I think, for as long as possible because there are documents dating from March 1533, wherein Anne is still called the Marquess rather than the Queen. I think by, like, Easter 1533, it's common knowledge that Anne is now Henry's wife and she's being included. She's, like, lumped into all of the you know, countrywide prayers for the royal family. So I think it's, everyone's figured out at this point. And that's right about the time she would have started to show. So it all kind of correlates to the fact that at some point, probably in December 1532, Elizabeth was conceived. And now we're racing against the clock. So I think with that in mind, we can kind of move over onto our next bride, um, which is Jane Seymour. This is really, I find this super, super interesting. So on the day that Jane and Henry were betrothed, so the 20th of May, 1536, that's just very, very, that is one day after Ambulin's executed. So not he's, only... He's wasting no time he's, here. He's done, done, on to the next word. Although I do think it's interesting that he waited that long, really. I mean, it, it sounds not very tactful to us at all, you know, waiting mere hours after your other wife has been murdered. But technically, Anne and Henry's marriage was annulled before Anne was actually executed. So it's just interesting that Henry was, like, waiting for the ultimate seal of the deal. Like, let's make sure she's really, really gone, and then we'll have the betrothal. 
I think it's smart. I'm not saying it's a good decision. I'm saying it's a smart decision because I think he learned quite quickly um, after everything that happened with um, Catherine of Aragon. You don't need a rally point. Let's just get rid of her completely. So they were actually married on the 30th of May, 1536, so 11 days after Anne was executed. My question always is with this, and I, I don't know what your thoughts are, do you think it suggests an attempt to arrange Anne from public memory and kind of public kind of view altogether, getting married that quickly? I think this was a chance for Henry to kind of really start over. And so, yeah, there was some erasure with Anne. And we want to get her gone as swiftly as possible. I mean, if you think about it, she was arrested on May 1st, on May Day. And by the end of the month, Henry is already married to his new wife. So there is a sense of urgency in the sense that that was a mistake. We need to rectify that as quickly as possible. And Jane is just in the wings this whole time waiting for the signal, right? Waiting for Henry to be like, yep, okay, let's go to church now. It's severe. And it's quite, I, I will use the word violent in the sense of how it's, the marriage is brought about with an execution and how, and then that Jane's exit from the world is also quite violent, dying in childbirth. Like, it's just all very... Sudden. Yeah, that is a thank you. I couldn't think of the word. I was just like, it's fit. Because um, I was reading but... something and, it, um, and I think there was a quote from like, Antonia Fraser that said that they were married um, quickly and quietly. Quickly, I agree with. Whether anything about this relationship, this marriage was quiet is another thing entirely. But I think that makes sense um, of, yes, there's the private, intimate wedding aspect that we are talking about, which is lovely. But also, this too makes sense why Henry wanted it to be kind of on the down low, in the sense that most people probably agree that it's not a very good look to marry your third wife mere days after you've executed your second. And so the haste of this, I think, makes the quiet necessary. Um, and then, as we've said, there's this delay between actually Jane becoming queen in the sense that she married Henry, but being proclaimed queen. Uh, it, 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 all, it happens a couple of weeks later. So... You, you can see the PR machine kind of moving here of let's get her settled, let's get you married, let's put this to bed. But then on the, the public side, we can tweak it a little bit to make it seem a little bit more tactful. Jane and Henry were married at Whitehall Palace, but this time they were married in the Queen's closet. But then there's the marked difference, of course, that we actually know details about Jane's wedding. We know exactly where it was. There's no, well, Edward Hall says, well, this guy yeah. says, well, Cranmer wasn't there. We know for sure that Jane was married in the Queen's closet of the chapel of Whitehall Palace and that they were married by Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester. So high-ranking clergy was present. I don't know. It just, it, it's a lot more um, solid than all of the weird misinformation going on with Henry and Anne's previous wedding. It's, it's, it's neat and tidy. My favorite detail of their wedding, though, is the fact that they both wore white. And I think we've said this before, but white is not the traditional bridal color of this period as it is now. That's a Victorian thing that came later. But white is a symbol of, like, purity um, and 
rebirth almost. So I think it's a very poignant thing that Henry chooses to have them both wear white because as we've said, this is the very quick arranged marriage post Anne and he's starting over. Like for a lot of people, even still, you see this being argued very passionately on Twitter, even in 2023. A lot of people still don't think that Anne was ever actually Henry's wife because their marriage happened while he was still technically married to Catherine of Aragon. And if you're of the mind that annulments and divorces were not a thing, then they never technically got married. And um, when Catherine died in January 1536, only then was Henry free to marry again. So if you're of that mind then as now, Jane Seymour is technically Henry's next wife. He is completely free to marry because both of his previous wives are now dead. So the fact that he's wearing white shows that he is completely aware of this fact. And it's just reinforcing this idea that this is his his new start. Jane is his his phoenix, as we've said, um, the the new life to the, in the Tudor dynasty. And of course, we know that she fulfills her promise in this too. So it's all very neat and tidy that way. leapfrogging over Anne of Cleves, because hopefully you listened to our last episode where we talked a lot about Anne of Cleves. We're going to be looking at Henry's last two marriages and perhaps not so eventful as the first three that we talked about. Um, They're actually fairly typical in the sense that they were very similar. They're both very quiet, intimate ceremonies, and there's really not too much to say about them, to be quite honest. Like, I hate to be mean to Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr, but their marriages were kind of politically unremarkable. This is a problem we always have when we come to these two, where we're doing a chronological episode, where it's like, first three, fireworks, last three, two. It's such a bizarre story with the first three that they're all embroiled in all this drama that by the time you get to these last two, you're like, oh, and then they were there too. So we're going to do our best to break down these weddings, but just as a fair warning, um, you might not be thrilled by them. They're they're very much not cute. I'd grab a coffee now. It's not boring, it's just a bit slower. Less exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Catherine Howard was married to Henry on July 28th, 1540. And the thing that makes this date interesting is much like the speed with which Henry married Jane in the wake of Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard married Henry only three weeks after his marriage to Anne of Cleves was annulled. So once again, we can see that kind of speed with which Henry has moved on. There is a woman in the wings waiting to go. And the minute the whistle blows, she has to be ready to walk down the aisle. This marriage is also interesting because the whole debacle with Anne of Cleves is actually fairly embarrassing for Henry. Like, We'll talk about this probably in another episode, but the way in which he framed his um, his annulment to Anne was basically that he 
he felt no desire for Anne to the point where he couldn't complete his husbandly duties. So the fact that now he's coming off of that, he kind of needs a rebound pretty quickly. And I think that's what this whole wedding to Catherine Howard symbolizes is it's fairly quick. And once again, he think he's trying to be mindful of how quick it is. So there is a delay between him marrying Catherine and then her being announced as his queen but there's a lot of um, face saving going on here, if you like. Maybe that's where Catherine, um, Catherine Howard is the ultimate choice because she is younger. She is, like we said before, she's 17. So it, mm, it's icky. But, you know, <laughs> going back to the reasons of his annulment, he's hoping there won't be an issue there. I'm going to stop talking because I didn't say that very well at all. Well, I think the major issue is, to that you have all of a sudden this foreign bride. The whole world watched this marriage happen. Uh, the whole court watched, literally watched this marriage happen. And now you have this princess kind of just sitting there. And sure, she's been granted all this money and, like, dower lands and everything. But you've kind of embarrassed her on the world stage. And now she's just sitting there. So... The marriage has to happen, I think, fairly quickly and fairly quietly again to limit the amount of embarrassment we cause Anne of Cleves. I think it's another deliberate move to control Henry's reputation that way, because at this point we are on number five. So however, however much we can make this look better, let's let's take that road. So once again, Catherine's wedding just like all the other ones, is a fairly intimate ceremony. There are only a handful of ladies and gentlemen of the Privy Chamber present, so these are like their most close-knit associates who are witnessing the marriage, and probably Catherine's family as well. And it took place at Oatland's Palace in Surrey, which no longer stands, but it's one of Henry's um, sort of country residences that was fairly new at the time and just renovated. So out of the way, it was um, very quiet. And interestingly, it was officiated by the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, rather than any of the more notable high clergy. Even to, to like the point that they're not married in London, they're married, I mean, sorry, technically London, don't come at me for that, but they're not married in central London you know, Whitehall or, you know, even down at Greenwich where there is that potential to be seen quite soon after. It's very much removed and out of the way. And of course, one of the other sticking points here is the huge age difference. It's not so much of an issue for them as it is for us. It still doesn't look great, but it's not as much of an issue. Henry here is almost 50 years old. He's about to turn 50. And Catherine is somewhere in the range of like, her late teens like 17 or 18 ish like once again kind of like we said with jane i think henry is seeing this as kind of like a clean slate moment for himself he's got this new hot young wife who apparently is like completely in love with him even though he is not in his prime anymore and i think this is where we see the intimacy of the wedding reflecting henry's kind of hopes for a new chapter and I want to read the um, the wedding vows now, just because I think of all of, I mean, all of the queens took a version of these vows, but I think they 
illustrate what Catherine was getting into a lot more because the the wedding vows, as I said, are very similar to the ones we have now with an added caveat for the women to be definitely more of a companion and more subservient to her husband. And I think more than any of the other queens who were older, more mature, but also had like more defined personalities and wills, Catherine is the person who is going to have to subscribe to these vows wholly and completely. So I just want to read out. They're similar, and then I'll tell you where we add the one for women. So Catherine would have said, I, Catherine, take thee to my wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and thereto I plight thee my troth. And then in the middle of that, she has to add, only the women, to be bonny and buxom in bed and at board, which basically means that you have to be sexually available anytime your husband wishes it, but also you have to, um, you have to keep his home well. You have to have a welcoming home for your husband because you're seen as the person who should take care of him that way. And I don't know, I just, I feel like this is something that a sort of politically powerless 17 year old girl would be much more subscribed to than any of the other queens it's very telling like very clearly telling of social structures and things like that but like you said she's got less agency to say no in the right way to him well and you have to think too that this is potentially the reason that henry married catherine in the first place is to have somebody who doesn't have an iron will it goes to show you that henry's ideal at this point was to have somebody who can comfort him, who can be sexually available after the whole thing with Anne of Cleves, and who fulfills his kind of ideal of the perfect wife rather than a queen. Does that make sense? Like he's looking for somebody for himself and his home rather than to lead the nation in the same way that like a Catherine of Aragon would. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm completely with you on that one. And I would agree. And the decision, I think, slightly backfires. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about the way it, it really does backfire. But um, in the immediate aftermath of their wedding, once again, it takes a couple of weeks for uh, Catherine to be proclaimed queen and for the wedding to be announced. And it actually happens at Hampton Court. The newly wedded couple travels to Hampton Court together after they have like a little honeymoon period. And Catherine is seen and lauded at court as the queen. And then she is lumped into the prayers at court. So suddenly everyone around the country is having to bless the new Queen Catherine, that kind of thing. And once that happens, I think everyone kind of maybe grimaces slightly. Um, I mean, it's not to say that Catherine isn't of good lineage. She's the granddaughter of a Duke of Norfolk. So that's pretty good. It's the same that Anne was really. But um, I think the difference is that she's replacing somebody who has impeccable breeding, um, a princess, an actual princess, right? In the form of Anne of Cleves, who's also still around, by the way, she's, she's, she's here. So I think there are some mumblings of, well, this is strange. Like we had a woman who in our eyes was completely qualified to be queen in the sense that she was of noble birth, of noble birth, of impeccable birth. And yet now our queen is this young girl 
I think I don't think people like rallied against her in the same way they might have rallied against Anne Boleyn. Like nobody walked out of mass and refused to pray for her, for instance. But I think there were probably some grumblings of this is this is weird, isn't it? It's not just me, right? Yeah, she's she's politically harmless. But then I think the fallout that we know happens with Catherine Howard, I think, translates very nicely into the circumstances surrounding Henry's final wedding which is to Catherine Parr. Henry's marriage to Catherine Parr happens a few months after Catherine Howard's execution. So there is a bit of a waiting period after Catherine is executed to bring in the next wife. Catherine is executed in February 1543, and Henry marries Catherine Parr on July 12th. So it is interesting to see that there was a a bit of a mourning period for Henry there, I mean, we've seen that he's not necessarily one for tact, so it had nothing to do with, like, let me wait the appropriate amount of time to get remarried. We know that's not an issue. I think it has more to do with the fact that he was so blindsided by the betrayal of this thornless rose, his perfect ideal wife who was supposed to be his companion forever. I think the betrayal hurt enough that he took his time trying to find her replacement. He's not one to be surprised very often. He's normally the one doing the surprising in the form of, by the way, see you later, off to the chopping block. It kind of knocks him in a way that is humiliating for him in a way that he probably didn't expect. It actually took a couple of months of searching amongst the women at court and wooing, if you will, to finally get to the point where Henry and the sixth queen, Catherine Parr, are getting married. And I think more than all the other ones, I think this is the one that can be actually considered to be the most intimate, like without any side political agenda happening. Like there's no, um, there's no quiet, like, oh, well, we, we need to save face a little bit. So how about we keep this quiet and not a big ceremony or this needs to be secret because you technically shouldn't be getting married at all. This one I think is actually one that by design happened in a very quiet and I almost family oriented ceremony because it happened at Hampton Court Palace, which by this point was Henry's favored residence right outside of London. And it happened once again in the Queen's closet above the Chapel Royale, which interestingly enough, you can actually go visit today. It still exists at Hampton Court Palace. So you can actually see the room in which uh, Catherine Parr married Henry. And because of this, you can see how kind of like literally physically intimate this ceremony would have been. It's a tiny room and it it overlooks the Chapel Royale. So it has the essence of it. It tricks you into thinking that it's a bigger space than it is, but it, it, it really isn't. And somehow in this room, they crammed 20 witnesses in there and they were all of the um, the king's closest confidants, like members of his privy chamber, Catherine's family, like her brother was there, but then also Henry's immediate family. So his niece, Lady Margaret Douglas, was one of the witnesses, and she was attending Catherine, so kind of like a bridesmaid now. But also um, Henry's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, were there. And I just think that it says something that it's intimate in the sense that it's private and it's not happening in this lavish ceremony in front of the entire court, but it is still a sizable ceremony happening that includes their families. It's like the most, it's the, of all of them, it's, I think the most like what we would expect of a wedding. 
I think maybe potentially speaks to Catherine Parr's influence on him, kind of bringing his children back into the fold a little bit, like even before they are officially married. Um, but also potentially, you know, his waning years and he's not looking for a wife that's politically expedient. He just wants, he just wants someone to play. It's almost like he just wants someone to play cards with at the end of the day um, and that he can have an intellectual conversation with, which is what they they, they did more than anything. Yeah, I think he's just looking for company at this point. It's almost sad. Yeah, he's definitely looking just for comfort now. And I think this wedding seems just very comfortable. I mean, maybe not for the 20 people crammed in that little room, but uh, comfortable in the sense that there's nothing showy about it. I mean, I'm sure they were dressed really well. I'm sure they were wearing jewels out the wazoo, I'm sure. (laughs) They weren't in their sweatpants or anything. But I mean, it's it comfortable in the sense that only our closest people are here. Um, it's it's not anything big. We're just going to listen to a mass, and that'll be that'll be that. And we're going to keep it about the two of us. Which, I mean, this is Henry's sixth wedding, so I mean, it's nothing new for him, right? Like he he's knows gone the through score this here. <laughs> he, he does, and this is Catherine's third wedding. So they're both uh, fairly practiced at what goes on. And I can see them both saying this should just be about us. Nothing huge. Just let's do it quietly to the point where even um, Eustace Chapuis, who's in his last days as the imperial ambassador, actually reports that the king espoused the queen quietly and without ceremony. And the way he writes it, he's almost surprised by it. Um I'm probably not shocked, but a little surprised that he was probably hearing about this weeks after it actually happened. The other sort of indication of Catherine's character that you get within her wedding does hearken to the fact that, as we said in our Gotten War series, this is a time when the factionalism at court between the more conservative-leaning Catholic faction and then the reform people who want more reform in the Church of England, it's really starting to heat up. And Henry notices this. And I think in creating the ceremony, he might have actually consulted Catherine, who at this point we know is more reformed leaning, but is trying her best to keep it on the down low. But I think he's really trying to straddle the line between these factions. And it's interesting because in this ceremony, we know that Stephen Gardner, Catherine's future best friend, um, did the wedding ceremony. So the thing that she has in common with Jane Seymour, he also married Henry and Jane Seymour. He still says the mass and his oration in Latin because he is of the conservative mindset as is Henry. But interestingly, the ceremony itself, like the actual, like the wedding vows and the the wedding itself was in English which we know Catherine is that's something that she's super passionate about is having religious services be accessible in this way. If it's going to get her down the aisle almost and get her to marry him, then why is he not going to do it? I'm sure that's not how it happened. And because he's also very, very stubborn on points that he would just not move on when it came to religion. But you know, if that's if if giving her a sermon in English is going to make her happy, why not? (laughs) It's a good compromise, though, because the important religious bits, like the high holy bits, the mass, and then the bishop's oration, 
they're still in Latin, so we're not touching that. It's just the the stuff between Henry and Catherine, the more personal side of the ceremony that's happening in English. So if we're going to compromise and we're going to have something that's more middle of the road to appeal to everybody, this was actually very well designed. It's just normal. And I mean, I know that it has some, um, you know, religious implications there, so that's not normal. But like in terms of the political weight of the ceremony, there is none. (laughs) It's a marriage of equals and a marriage of people rather than a marriage of treaties, ideologies and politics. Um, so I, I, I like the fact that, that no two of them are the same and that there's mystery surrounding some of them. And that they are wholly untypical, though. Um, I mean, we're used to royal weddings being these really grand affairs. And even when they're not huge, massive public spectacles, they're still big. And Henry is somebody who we inherently associate with being big and liking the ceremony and wanting to be seen dripping with jewels and everything. And yet all but one of his weddings were private affairs and in some cases with mystery witnesses and or just his his kids and his immediate family. So I think that would be surprising to a lot of people but also now that we've unpacked it i hope that you see like how all of these weddings however quiet they were and seemingly uneventful all of that was for for reasons you know like whether it was political tact or it was trying to keep it secret it it wasn't just henry liked to be romantic i mean there was romantic elements but they were all for a reason right and then finally when we get to catherine parr it's like Yeah, it makes sense that now he just wants something quiet. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Kate and I will have a look at the scandalous past of Catherine Howard and how she caught Henry's eye. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Long live the Queens! <laughs>